Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. So we were both at series that uh, had a number of, of major celebrities. Um, for me, in San Jose last night, Brandy Chastain fired up the crowd, uh, American soccer legend. In Vegas, a, a bit more of a celebrity uh, slate. Uh, it was Flava Flav, Lil John, and a guy I was standing right next to, and boy, is he a tall drink of water, Gordon Ramsay was there to go, I guess, yell at Vegas in the locker room, the teal team is blowing you away but he was exciting and you were in boston where a a a, a new england patriots legend uh fired up the crowd before game seven it wasn't just that though yes julian edelman was there there was also the celtics aka coach brad stevens aka mayor pete from south Mm -hmm. bend he was there (laughs) Uh, we also had Justin Bieber and his mm-hmm. lovely wife Haley in a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey, which, mm-hmm. by the way, side note, did anybody see David Pasternak go completely nuts on social media and comment on all of Justin Bieber? Not only did he tweet it, he went on his Instagrams like, dude, go home. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that was it. But it was great. It was a lot of celebrities. Honestly, I of all of that, I'd be most happy to see Brandi Chastain. That's my girl. Mia Hamm would be number one. She'd be number oh, two. She's the best. She still um, braces. Last time I saw her, she had adult braces. She did. Deep Bieber Love curse. What a Drake model. curse. These are things that the Maple Leafs have to avoid if they're ever going to get past the Bruins. You can't have Drake at the home games. Mm-mm. You can't have Bieber anywhere near your team after that nonsense in the Blackhawks locker room that one time where he stood on the logo. Oh, you just oh, can't no, have no, no. these guys. No, nobody in the Bieber Drake universe needs to be anywhere near the Maple Leafs if they're going to win the cup. Can't happen. Go get Gordon Ramsay and Flavor Flav instead. Oh, wait. Now, that didn't work out for Vegas either. Coming up on ESPN and Ice, we're going to talk about it not working out for Vegas in every single possible way in the third period of that game. Um, plus previews of the second round and uh, reviews of the action that happened. Plus Chris Johnston, the sports down of the Leafs, and John Davidson, JD, president of hockey operations for the Columbus Blue Jackets, to talk about the Jackets and also his future, potentially, with the New York Rangers. All that and more. On ESPN and Ice, let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey everybody, it's ESPN and Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I am Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, National NHL reporter. And Greg, I realize when we're talking about celebrities and tall drinks of water, I totally neglected the Carolina Hurricanes and their big celebrity fan. A tall, tall drink of water, John Isner. Oh, there you go. That is a tall man. <laughs> That's a very tall man. <laughs> yeah, major celebrities at the Hurricanes games as well. Um, I want to begin by thanking Jonathan Marchessault for talking uh, last night. Uh, he stood before us in the... Vegas Golden Knights locker room after their Game 7 overtime loss to the San Jose Sharks, in which uh, noted Squire Barclay Goudreau scored the overtime goal in his second shift of overtime to send the Sharks in the second round against Colorado. Um, Marsh is so not happy with the way things worked out in Game 7, in particular in the third period, where, as you've no doubt seen by now, Cody Eakin was given a major penalty for cross-checking after he uh, gave Joe Pavelski a cross-check in the chest. Pavelski stumbled backwards. Paul Sazny collided with him, kind of threw him down on the ice a little bit. Uh, Pavelski's head hit the ice in a horrific scene, uh, was bleeding out of his helmet, 
uh, was helped with uh, by his teammates back to the back. We're hoping he's okay, obviously. Um, Barcher still th- hoped he was okay, too, before going off on a gloriously raw and profane rant about how the uh, referee stole the game from the Vegas Golden Knights. The Sharks scored four goals on the five-minute major power play to overcome a 3 nothing deficit. Um, and uh, and how the NHL should be embarrassed by this. And uh, and basically, you know, that the call ended the Vegas Golden Knights season. Um, it was a, a really intense, emotional night for Vegas. Um, the way I see it, Emily, is this. If you want to say that the Vegas Golden Knights um, lost the series in games five and six by not closing out the Sharks, you would be correct. Um, that, that It's undisputable. That does not mean <laughs> that they did not get absolutely jobbed in game seven by one of the worst calls that we've ever seen insofar as affecting the outcome of a game. And make no mistake, it affected the outcome of the game. The Sharks were cooked. Ten minutes left in game seven, down three, nothing. Flurry playing great. Knights playing great. This was a life preserver that they were tossed by the game officials. Game officials who, by the way, told Gerard Gallant that one of the reasons why, or maybe the primary reason why they called a major penalty on Eakin is because he hit Pavelski in the head with a stick, which is a phantom call. It never happened. So my issue here is the refs committed the cardinal sin of refereeing and officiating. They guessed. You're never supposed to guess. Um, and I think the problem here is this has punctuated what has been a really unfortunate uh, first round for the officials, to be quite frank. Awful. It's, oh. you know, you wrote about it. It's maddeningly inconsistent. And, you know, I was bouncing around series and it was so interesting listening to coaches talk, especially at the beginning of their series, what other series they were watching. Um, I know that Todd Reardon said this. I know Brew Cassidy said it. They said, you know, I'm really only watching for the refs to see how they're going to call things, you know, what the trends are going to be. And I couldn't help but think, what trends are they seeing? Because they're different in every game. Um, yeah. And and that's the issue here is that there's no baseline and and this call I think will you know be the microcosm of it. We'll use this as the example, but there's been plenty of other questionable ones as well. There have been and and mostly involving goalie interference, which at this point we just have to kind of accept that it's the strike zone of hockey. Like it's going to be different for every single person who's officiating a game. There's no consistency whatsoever to it. On this call, I, you know, it's it's frustrating. I, I I. I can't wrap my brain around what they thought happened on this play to warrant a major penalty. Like you said, they guessed. And the problem with guessing is that this is the second time in the series. The first time being when Logan Couture uh, took a Marsha so high stick, lost some teeth on the ice. Second time in the series in which the on-ice officials didn't make a penalty call and had the opportunity to. And, and, when, and last night was literally one of them staring at the play as Pavelski got cross-checked. And then somehow, some way they come to the conclusion that there should be a penalty afterwards. And on the Couture one, it's because they watched it on television. Last night, I don't know what happened because the NHL is not being candid about it. And it's a joke. Like, what, what, is the, what is the major malfunction with the NHL that they can't be transparent enough to explain how a call gets made? Like, the referees didn't make the call. So it either came from the linesman or saying, not. I saw something on the play in which they were mistaken, or it, it came to these guys in conference when they saw blood on the ice and said, well, we have to call something here. So, And the idea that they can't be transparent about it is a joke. It is a disgrace. It's an embarrassment. Every single thing the, the Golden Knights said last night is absolutely true. Game was stolen from them. 
And, and don't sit here and tell me, oh, they can kill the penalty. They shouldn't have to. There was a five-minute major for a cross-checking minor in Game Seven with ten minutes left. What? What? They, they, who cares about them killing the penalty? Who cares about it being in overtime? It should never happen. And and here's the real debate, Emily. The real debate is this, because this is what Marcia so kind of was hinting at last night in between the f bombs. We have reviews for goals. We have reviews for offsides. We have reviews for, for goal interference. I know as a hockey fandom, we don't want to over-review the sport. But I've said this for years. A high-sticking call or a, a, a play in which there is a contact between a stick and a player's head can result in a penalty like we saw last night. It's a game-changing penalty. Why not review it? Why not review it to see if it was a teammate stick instead of the guy's stick you think it was? Why not review it to, I don't know, have the anatomical uh, analysis that determines what is a head and what is a chest, which, if applied to last night's incident, would have revealed that the stick didn't make contact with the head. Like, what is the big deal with maybe just double-checking your work so when you make a game-changing call, and in last night's case, a series-altering call, you get it right? Like, what's wrong with that? When people start talking about slippery soaps, I think they talk about things like, well, are we just going to review everything? No, you just review the things that could give a team a power play for five minutes and have them score as many goals as they want during that five minutes. Like, it is a significant call and oftentimes not the correct one. If they had a review last night of that play and they still came away with a five-minute major penalty, I would have been shocked. Because anybody watching that, 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 that play would tell you that's a minor penalty at best. All so right. the Knights are completely justified in being as pissed off as they are. That was an absolute disgrace. Clown call. It was a clown call, right? That was the other thing that happened. It was the Gerard Gallant uh, calling uh, Pete DeBoer a clown uh, for candor. claiming that Gallant was uh, 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 chirping the Sharks players on the bench. As I said to many people last night at the game, I wish this, I, I, I'm sad it was game seven. I wish it could go like 12 games because it was just getting really good between these two teams, the amount of hate between them. And look, now that I'm done talking about how the referees stole the game from the Knights, because they did, I will say that um, the Sharks deserve an incredible amount of credit for rallying in the series. Martin Jones, eh, not so good in Game 7, but amazing in Game 6, and got him to a Game 7, redeemed himself in maybe for the series with that performance in Game 6. And at the end of the day, they, they win it in overtime, and they advance, they survive in advance, they uh, defeat a Knights team that had the better of the play in the series. And kudos to the Sharks. I, I, I think this is the start of maybe something special for them. And uh, they should take some pride in the way they rallied. Um, and it's not their fault that the referees gifted them the game. They took the gift and they opened it. And they and they played with the toy. To get back to the clown business for a second, then I'll get back to the Sharks. There's been some good coach-on-coach drama in these playoffs. <laughs> when I was in Carolina, Rod Brindamore... And Todd Reardon were kind of going at each other via the media. Um, you know, it started with Todd Reardon saying, I don't talk about other players. And then uh, I don't, it's not my policy to talk about players on the other team. And two days later, uh, Brendan Moore snaps back with saying, I don't worry about players on other teams. A uh, little yeah. sass there. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, you've been around San Jose. You've seen this team. Are they flawed? Um, can they get past this Colorado team? Because I'll be frank, if I'm jumping on a bandwagon right now in the West – I've long been on the Blues bandwagon uh, that started last year, but I really like this Avalanche team. They're not just a one-line team. They're good. They're really good, and um, they're fast. And, yeah. and that, that to they're me, speed. is the big the big issue in this series for San Jose 
is the speed differential that they have to uh, Colorado. That's a problem. And, uh, you know, if, if Pavelski's out, that's an even bigger problem. The Sharks do have, you know, some weaponry that you've got to be cognizant of. And they certainly still have Eric Carlson and Brent Burns. Carlson, it's funny, you know, you got half the league saying he's cooked and he had a bad series. You have half the league saying he played fine. Um, but you've got half have the both those guys. Writers probably named him a Norris trophy and half the people didn't have him in the top 50. Yeah, precisely. And so, um, the speed deficit here for the Sharks is a problem. Um, but that was a really impressive series win for them. And, uh, and so I can't count them out, but if Grubauer gives the Avalanche the series that he gave them in round one against Calgary, it could be an avalanche advance past the Sharks in the series. It's going to be interesting to see. All right, quickly, um, I want to get to the sexiest series no one's going to talk about. Mm-hmm. That's the Blues Stars. Why do you find it so sexy? I find it so sexy because if you consider January 1st where these teams are, Dallas Stars not only had to weather the Christmas storm of Jim Lights calling out their team, but then <laughs> their new coach, Jim Montgomery, goes and tells reporters, we have a culture of mediocrity. That's what mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. And they come out of that. Uh, rally in an impressive way, don't score any goals, change their identity, and here they are knocking off the top seed in the Central Division to face the Blues in the playoffs. And, of course, you don't have to be reminded about the Blues' incredible season uh, from worst to best, from ugly duckling to the bride and, you know, bell of the ball. They look terrific, and, you know, I really do think that a lot of people are viewing them as the favorites to emerge out of the West, maybe even the favorites in the Cup, but maybe the Bruins or Caps, depending on what happens at this Caps game tonight, would be the only teams that could challenge that. It should be a fascinating series from a goaltending perspective. Bennington was super impressive against the Jets. Bishop outplayed Pecorene in that series against Nashville. The real interesting development for Dallas, because one of their big issues coming into the playoffs was secondary scoring, the Rupe Hints dickinson Matsukarello line uh, that they trotted out a few times seems to maybe have solved that problem on secondary scoring, along with what Ben Sagan and Radulov give you. So this is going to be a real tight series. And, I mean, I'd give the slight nod to St. Louis. Um, what they did, I think, is more impressive. I, I didn't think Winnipeg was all that terrible in that series. Um, I did think that Nashville was fundamentally broken for most of the season and continued to play that way in the playoffs. So I'm a little bit more impressed with what the Blues did in the first round than what Dallas did. Um, but it's going to be a tight, tight, tight series but I gotta be honest with you, I think the Blues have shown a propensity for winning those kinds of games so far, so I think I might lean Blues in the series. Yeah, you know, I called it the sexiest series no one's gonna talk about, but no one finds defense sexy, and let's be honest, this is probably gonna be a defensive battle. There's two good goaltenders. The defense on both teams are really good, and when you talked about what St. Louis did against uh, Winnipeg, what I was most impressed by is how they shut down Winnipeg's top, top stars when it mattered most in yeah, the deciding yeah. game. Line mm-hmm. nothing. Scheif, nothing. Wheeler, nothing. Uh, Kyle Connor, nothing. And that to me is the most impressive. And, you know, Dallas's top line is operating on a different wavelength right now. Radulov, Ben, and Sagan have been absolutely terrific. But if you can, you know, tone them down a little bit, uh, that's the key to the series, in my opinion. Should be a fun one um, for those of us who like a lack of fun in their series. Um, anyways, congratulations. Series nobody's talking about, but talking about a lot. Congratulations again to David Poyle, the winningest general, general manager of all time on... Uh, Another season without a cup. And uh, speaking of winningest of all time, uh, Mike Babcock, uh, head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, is coming under fire. And uh, we talked to our good friend CJ Chris Johnston 
about the uh, state of the Leafs after their Game 7 loss to the Bruins. Now joining us is a great friend of me and Greg, but even better reporter, and that is Chris Johnston of Sportsnet. Chris follows the Leafs, but also the entire league, and he's got a pulse on it. And Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I uh, feel like I watched the same movie as I saw a couple times before last night and uh, <laughs> made my way back home to Toronto today to, to pick up the pieces on the Leafs season. So, Chris, you know, following the game from a Toronto perspective, especially a Toronto fan perspective, there's tons of questions right now about Mike Babcock, um, about his usage of Austin Matthews, um, his quick trigger on power play one, whether he's the right coach uh, for this young group moving forward. Where do you see Babcock's status and moving forward with his team? Well, I, I would say he's on shaky ground right now. Um, you know, this has been building for a little while, and, and you know, especially since Kyle Dubas took over the general manager's chair last May, you know, when, when you have a coach that wasn't hired by the GM, I think there's always a little extra attention on how that relationship is perceived to be working. And, and, you know, there were times this year that it seemed as though, you know, with the moves that were being made by management in terms of bringing in players or uh, in terms of things that, that they're known to favor, didn't jive with what the coach was doing. And so I think that all that was kind of rumbling uh, lowly in the background and, and, you know, obviously what you're seeing today and, and, and after the Game 7 in Boston is a lot of people are frustrated. The Leafs haven't shown uh, enough progress uh, quickly under Mike Babcock. He's been here four years. You know, he took over. They were the worst team in the league. They've they've gotten markedly better with uh, some, some good young players. But, um, you know, I think all that's spilling out into the public now and it's just sort of a reminder that the goodwill is gone. You, you, they can't sell a young team trying to learn how to win anymore and they have to to get down to winning or, or the pressure I think is only going to go up from here. How much of this is a byproduct of Kyle clearly having his own guy in his back pocket down with the Marlies? That, that's definitely an element of it. And, and the fact that Sheldon Keith coached the Marlies to the Calder Cup last year didn't hurt. They're, they're actually an underdog right now in their first round series with Rochester and are up 2 nothing as we're speaking now in that series. So, you know, he's been the most successful coach uh, the Leafs have had of their AHL team in basically recent memory. I, I don't even know if anyone else's winning percentage compares to what he has. And so I think that that, that plays into it a little bit. I, I think still, though, a lot of the, the fixation is on the relationship between a general manager who's 33 and a coach who's 20 years older than him and, and is known to be uh, very stubborn, very opinionated. And the idea that that isn't going to work for too long and, and – you know, I have to be honest. I, I'm not sure how much longer it will work. I, you know, I don't think Mike Babcock's losing his job this off season, but I, I can't say for sure it won't happen. Uh, and you know, I think that there's a, sort of an understanding in the Leafs organization that they probably don't have forever to contend or to try to win, and and so it's an imperative that they're doing everything they can to to give themselves the best chance. And if the coach and the GM aren't on the same page with with how the team should be run and, and assembled, you know, there might require a change there to, to make sure everyone's pulling on the same rope. Yeah, you mentioned that about, you know, the window to win, and I think that's something that hasn't really been discussed enough about this season because contractually, this was kind of a year to win. I mean, Tavares coming in, a couple guys on their ELCs, now things get a little bit dicey with the money that Marner's going to make. Have Have we sort of underestimated what the window is for this team and, and how small it could have been? Well, for sure. You know, and I, I can tell you from speaking to executives with other teams in the Atlantic Division, they see this as the least best chance. They saw this 
as a least best chance to to really put together a super team or the, the kind of team uh, that that can you know do some some serious damage. Uh, the job gets a lot tougher from here, and and you know they're still going to have a number of high end players. I think the Leafs should should comfortably be a playoff team next year. You know, I'm not predicting that kind of fall off, but it's hard to imagine them being able to assemble a team with as much depth as they had this season. And it's hard to imagine a scenario where they're able to retain all of their key players and, you know, improve things like the blue line where, you know, I think that it's, it's been thought quite correctly that has been a weakness uh, the last couple of years. And so, you know, this is a really tough off season for, for Kyle Dubas and, and, and the front office in terms of the decisions they make and, and, you know, I don't think there's any question it's going to be harder for them to build a, a, a super team, you know, moving forward with, you know, Matthews in eight figures, uh, John Tavares in eight figures, potentially Marner around the same level. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be a bleeding of talent here, and they have to hope they can find some young players or journeymen that are on basically league minimum contracts that can step up and, and fill in around the, 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 the centerpieces of this team next season. One guy we haven't mentioned yet, and he was the hot-button player of the first round, and that's Nazem Kadri. And, you know, logical convention says this is the time to trade him. I know he has a reasonable contract. I know he's a good player, but maybe he's just worn thin and he needs a change of scenery. That said, it feels like Kyle Dubas never does what you logically think he should do. Where do you see this situation going? I think there's a reasonable chance he's traded. You know, it's not the plan A. You know, the way I kind of imagine it, with the, the lease front offices, they've got about five different potential plans to, to make the cap work this year. You know, probably among the, the first is seeing if they can find a way to, to rid themselves of Patrick Marlowe's uh, contract. How would Babcock ever allow that? Net. Well, <laughs> I don't know that he's going to get a say in that. And uh, But, you know, assuming that's not going to happen, Marlowe has a full no-move clause, has four kids that he moved up to Toronto. You know, I can't imagine he's too uh, too eager to jump off the ship at this point. You know, they might have to, to then carve out someone like Kadri, who's been in Toronto his whole career. I think has become a pretty useful player. Uh, stupidity in, in game two of this series, notwithstanding, and a few other times, you know, over the years. Um, and the reason you probably move him now is that he's older than the core guys, you know, coming up on 29, and has that reasonable contract you mentioned. And, and so I think he's still a valuable commodity to other teams and someone that they wouldn't have trouble moving. And, and you know, if you're going to pay William Nylander $7 million a year, uh, you're, you're probably going to need him to play center just, to, you know, just with the way that the salary structure breaks down. So, you know, I, I think that there's a case there to to explore moving him. I think that they could, could probably get a decent return for him. And it might ultimately, even though it seems counterintuitive because he is on a, a pretty affordable deal, you know, for how much he, he produces, I, you know, I do think that there's a case to be made that it's, it's the right way forward as they sort of move around the, the deck chairs a little bit and, and try to take another run at it next season. CJ, do you think there's a chance that this is going to be one of those series losses that creates an overreaction? Like, I, I look at this team right now and I say, what is their reaction to Freddie Anderson being so leaky in a Game 7? What is their reaction to the blue line with with obviously Gardner doing what he did and and, and being what he was in the playoffs and, and, and so on and so forth. Do you think there is a chance there could be a, an overcorrection based on what this series ended up being? I, I don't see the front office doing that, Greg. You know, I, I really believe that the, the one strength of Kyle Dubas, among many, I guess, is that he's, he's not emotional in his decision-making. 
He can be an emotional guy, certainly. He's competitive. He didn't look too happy, as you might understand, in the hallway outside the, the, the dressing room last night. But, you know, I think he's pretty analytical in terms of uh, not not doing the sort of things you're talking about, and I think that that's going to be a benefit to the team. You know, if you look back to 2013, which was a totally different team, but the way the Leafs lost Game 7 at that point, you know, the the, the GM, Dave Nonis at the time, and, and his front office totally overreacted, and they signed David Clarkson. Uh, they made some personnel moves that, you know, were just flat-out wrong and, and basically led the team to where it was today, where they had to bottom out uh, and, and got some high draft picks and, and you know, sort of formed into what they are now. But there is certainly an overreaction in the city, and it's going to be interesting to see how the, the Leafs attempt to manage that. You know, from from my where I sit, I think that they are sensitive to, you know, how they're discussed in, in Toronto, what reporters are saying or tweeting about them. You know, this this will, will be a tough one for them to, I guess, navigate from a PR standpoint. But, you know, I just don't see this general manager doing anything rash. All right, Chris, last one for me. You know, our audience here at ESPN on Ice is predominantly American, and we tend to look at things with a USA point of view. So I am tapping you as our senior Canada correspondent. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I didn't tell you that before. Sorry, sorry. Um, sorry. But uh, tell me, how big of a deal is it that there's not any Canadian teams in the second round? What is Canada feeling? What does this mean for viewership? What does this mean for ratings? What does this mean for morale? Like, just... Clue us, clue us in here of what this means for Canada right now. Well, to borrow another great Canadian's phrasing from this playoffs, it's a five-alarm fire up here in Canada. That was John Cooper said that about his Tampa Bay Lightning uh, after they lost Game 2 to Columbus. You know, I, I think the fact that it, all three Canadian teams that made the playoffs had some reasonable expectations. You know, Winnipeg and Calgary had great years. Calgary winning the Western Conference and, and the Leafs having some high... Um, expectations. The fact that none of them got through to the second round probably dooms ratings to a certain degree. You know, I, I don't, uh, I'm not not that clued into the sort of business side of TV, but you know, I can just say from from experience that you're not drawing in casual viewers with a lot of these matchups that we're going to have, especially with the weather getting nicer into May and and lots of other things to do. Um, and those Raptors, it, it, huh? And oh, the yeah. Raptors, and, and the Raptors out. are legit. I mean, they've They've come a long way in, in terms of Toronto's attention being split by them. I think that, that they have a huge following now. Uh, that go, you know, it used to be one of those teams where they'd sell out, but they didn't have many more fans beyond those in the building. You know, that's that's a long time ago now. They've they, they've got a real presence, especially in Toronto. So, you know, this this is it's tough. You know, I don't think there's any way around it um, from a Canadian standpoint. And you know, part of it is bad luck. You know that Canada hasn't had a winning team since 1993. It seems almost impossible. Um, but, you know, there's uh, it's going to be a, a difficult spring. You know, I, I'm a hockey nerd myself, and I think there's enough of us in, in Canada that want to watch any hockey game. So, you know, it's not a not as though the whole country's tuning out in terms of what happens in rounds two, three, and four of the Stanley Cup playoffs. But, you know, it won't have the same presence it did even last year where we had Winnipeg in the Western Conference Final. It's just going to change the, the feel in the country about uh, the way these playoffs unfold. I'm so well, sorry. listen, CJ, as you know, I'm an American, so can you can you just say everything you just said but more slowly and sensually? Because that's the sexiest thing I've ever heard. The fact that Canada's <laughs> struggling so mightily. Yes, uh, the hockey heart's broken in Canada for you, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> 
too bad. Aww. Too bad that didn't happen in the last couple Olympics with the NHL players. But, oh, uh, you you I know digress. what? You gotta ruin everything. All right, oh, listen. I'm sorry. You know Are what? we talking oh. about all the Olympics or just the women's Olympics hockey? <laughs> yeah, or world championships. Uh, <laughs> all right. I love you, I say this though, it's a shame we did not get best on best at this point because huh. pretty clearly the U.S. would be right there in anything with with uh, all the players that have come along. But I guess that's a topic for another day. Indeed it is. Um, All right, CJ, thank you so much for joining us, man. Appreciate all your work this year. And we'll see you on the road, too, man. That's be fun to to have you at the Boston Series. Yeah, it's going to be great. Look out, Columbus. I'm coming in hot. Our thanks to Chris Johnson of Sportsnet uh, for talking about the Leafs and Bruins. Any any uh, any strings to tie up from that series? You you run that series. Anything that lingering on your mind about the Leafies and the Bruins and, and what what happened in that series? You know, we went at nauseum about the Leafs. I don't know if there's anything more to say, but I will say <laughs> this about the Bruins: Tuka Rask was my big takeaway last night. Um, I loved, loved, loved the way that Bruce Cassidy defended him. As you guys all know, Tuka Rask has a love-hate relationship with Boston. And by that, I mean Boston has a love-hate relationship with Tuka Rask. I think yeah. it really began in that uh, playoff series against the Flyers when, you know, he let in 15 goals over four games. They blow the 3-0 lead. And everyone's like, who the heck is this guy? Uh, but Bruce Cassidy said, look, you as a fan have to acknowledge when a player plays well. And I know in this town when you don't, you hear about it. That's fine, too. But tonight he played well, and I hope the people get behind him. And uh, it's so true. He stopped 32 of 33 saves. He was money. His um, workload was decreased this season. It was the fewest amount of games he's played since he became a regular starter. And uh, Cassidy and Raspo said that that might be contributing to why he looks so fresh right now. Um, the Jackets Boston is a really interesting series. Uh, Columbus, I'm a little bit worried about them having late laid off uh, as much as they have. But they had that big scrimmage. They had their big scrimmage. They're trying to keep it fresh, but it's really tough when you have all that momentum. And, and one of the reasons they beat the Lightning was winning eight of nine games and rolling into the postseason like a playoff team and yada, yada, yada. Um, and the Bruins so have big beer energy from Julian Edelman. Yep, exactly. So they're on their keisters for a little bit, and uh, that that's kind of a problem for me. What's not a problem for me, though, is what I think is the biggest <clears throat> advantage in this series for Columbus, their forward group against Boston's. If Nazem Kadri doesn't do something sociopathic, um, I still think the Leafs maybe win that series because of the advantage that they have at forward. I know that the Bruins' grunts played well in Game 7, but you look top to bottom, four lines in Columbus. That is a formidable group when they're all going. And I, and I think that's a distinct advantage for them. Bruins have the advantage on D. Columbus has the advantage up front. Goaltending might be a wash. I'm going to take the Jackets in the series over the Bruins. Ooh, I like that. I don't even know if it's a hot take because, you know, when I was saying earlier that the Blues are probably the favorites to win the Cup, and then I was like, yeah, but actually the Bruins and actually but the Caps. The second after I said that, I was like, but what about the Blue Jackets, you know? Yeah, why not them? Why not us? <laughs> Living the dream. Who do you like in the series? What do you think? I like the Bruins. I think experience plays out. I think momentum is a thing. Uh, they're clicking in all cylinders. They got some big goals from bottom six guys. And anytime you get that kind of, you know, top to bottom production, uh, it looks good. And, you know, like I said, I'm on team Tuca. Tuca's locked in. Mm-hmm. I'm on team Matt Duchesne. Okay. <laughs> to each their own. Kitos. Moi moi. All right. Real briefly, uh, Washington, Carolina is happening tonight as we do the podcast. Um, 
I give full marks to Carolina for winning that game six, no matter what happens in game seven. That was, that was a super impressive moment and a great moment for that franchise. And I think they've acquitted themselves quite well in this first round series. Um, no matter who plays the Islanders, that series is going to be a grind. Obviously, we're both kind of hoping for the Barry Trotz versus Islanders, uh, versus uh, Capitals rather, uh, narrative to play out. Um, but if it's Carolina and the Islanders, what do you like in that series? You've you've covered the Hurricanes. You know them a little bit. Yeah. Um. You know, I like the way they play at home. I really do. I think they play a fearless style. Um. I like Peter Mrazek. I think he's been strong. Um. And I like the fact that the top line looks really good, and they're all of a sudden getting this star is born in Warren Fogle, who just can't help but find the net. It's pretty incredible. So uh, there's a lot I like there. Um. And obviously Justin Williams, Mister Game Seven. Side note. I get it. He's Mr. Game 7. But no one's talking about Carl Hagelin. He has a pretty good record in Game 7s, too. <laughs> Just saying. On Team Flow. So, yeah, I, I think it will be exciting. But, honestly, this will be like a defense versus defense series. We know um, the Islanders have been known for the defensive structure, um, really shutting down the Penguins in that first round and really shutting down most teams all season. And the Carolina Hurricanes, their biggest strength is a surplus of capable defensemen. Um, and so this will kind of just be them both flexing their defensive muscle. And I don't know if we're going to have any sexy big blowout games because I don't know if either team um, really has the capacity to do that. Maybe Carolina at home uh, if they got that Ajo, Tiervina line going. But other than that, uh, I'd think we'd be looking at a lot of 3-1, 3-2, 2-1 games. If it's the Capitals, that's going to be a real fascinating series. I'm obviously from a narrative standpoint, but also you're asking a lot from a team to win a, a full seven gamer without Oshie and without Kempney. Um, those are two really, really important players in that team. I think I'd still give them the advantage just because of the offensive weaponry and because of the, and this is a little inside baseball, the motivation of the Capitals to defeat their former coach who wasn't necessarily the most popular guy in that room. Um, but, uh, but it's going to be tough. There's a, there's definitely a man disadvantage in that series versus the Islanders. And the way the Islanders have been locked in defensively, I mean, that's the kind of play that you need to defeat the Capitals. I lean caps, but I have to really dig into the numbers and see exactly what happened to this Carolina series before I make a formal pick. All right. So uh, the Jackets are in the second round, which means that this next man is pretty happy. John Davidson, president of hockey operations for the Columbus Blue Jackets joins us here on ESPN and Ice. Joining us now on the line is the president of hockey operations for the Columbus Blue Jackets, John Davidson. So I guess the first question, J.D., is at what point during the series against the Tampa Bay Lightning did you know that the Blue Jackets had it in the bag? <laughs> Not against those guys. You never know if you're going to have it in the bag. The one thing that was uh, really strange was the way they took care of our team in the first period. They were up three zip in the first period. And we we had about an eight-minute span there. We we just weren't very good. And we had had that pattern against Tampa Bay during the regular season where we don't play them, and then all of a sudden they come down and score a goal, and then they come down and get another one. And so I thought the pattern was was remaining the same. And then when Nick Foligno scored, uh, no, actually when Bobrovsky made the huge save early in the second period with Tampa on the power play, it was a save off of uh, Kucherov. Uh, you, You kind of felt that he had settled in. And then Foligno scored on a breakaway, and then we took the game over. And from that point on, we were the better team in the series, except for, you know, the odd period of time here and there. But we were the better team. Uh, and, and I thought worthy of the, of the uh, series win, and we earned every bit of it for sure. 
For sure you did. And, and you bring up the, the notion of Tampa having done that with such ease during the regular season. And that's one of the theories that I, I found to be kind of uh, salient was the idea that they walked into game two, I think, thinking they could just step on the ice and it would just snap back. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they well, could you, just go back to playing that they like they played in the regular season, yeah, not understanding that the dynamics yeah. had changed. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to climb into what they were trying to do. I don't know, but I know that we we put and through our coaches structured a game plan where we 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 didn't give them many odd man rushes. Um, we 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 did things properly in the neutral zone, which probably got frustrating for them because they couldn't find the the pure offense that they're so so adapt with. I mean, they had 325 goals scored. They were the only team over 300 during the regular season. And uh, what's interesting is with our club, uh, we're, we're a pretty good five-on-five team all season long. Uh, our penalty killing in the second half of the season was the best. So it, it, it's, it's interesting that an eighth, eighth seed knocked off a terrific hockey club with an outstanding regular season. But I think our club deserves a little bit more credit um, than, than what's come our way, in my opinion. I mean, we took care of business, and a lot of it was what they didn't do. Well, a lot of it for me was what we did. The other good thing we did was we, uh, we became a team about two weeks prior, uh, for the first time. We had a lot of distractions, a lot of, uh, a lot of internal, uh, interesting scenarios with contracts and such. But after some good meetings with the players and our coaching staff, everything came together and, we're as tight as any team I've seen. It's it's terrific right now with a long way to go. We're going to head into Boston, and, of course, they're a very good hockey club. We finished up 11-1. and one. The only game we lost was to Boston, and they, and they played really well in that game in our building. So we'll see where this goes. Yeah, but that's why everybody thought you were fake because Boston walked into your building in a must-win game and waxed you. And then everybody yeah, they thought. Did. They, well, <laughs> Tuka Rask was really good early in that game, and then we didn't play very well for whatever reason, and Boston played great. They really did. And uh, so it was just, you know, when you're playing those games every second night for what seemed like a month, and we were coast to coast all over the place, most of them on the road, that's the other good thing for us, too, is we're a good road team. We've had a real good road record uh, all season long, so that's pretty exciting. For sure. I wanted to uh, pause on the the meetings you were talking about because I was was speaking with Seth Jones during the series, and he said that that meeting in particular during the Western Canada road swing, yeah, they, yeah. they apparently had talked earlier in the season to kind of clear the air on on Panarin and Bobrovsky and their situation. And then it seems like there's there were a few more meetings, and one in particular on this Western Canadian swing that uh, the players had that really kind of set things in motion for winning, you know, eleven out of twelve yeah. or twelve out of thirteen or whatever you guys had. Yeah. Do, do you do you have any sort of insight as to to maybe? in a general sense, what they were working on when they were talking internally? Well, what happened was we went on a Western Canadian trip. We went into Calgary and lost, and we were, in that game, by far the better team. Uh, but those things happen in sports. We didn't win. We went into Edmonton, and we laid an egg. We lost again, but we were brutal. And I mean brutal. And uh, then we went into Vancouver, but we had two days off between games. And there was a lot of uh, management meetings, coaches meetings, and trying to figure out what we're going to do. And then uh, the day of a practice, the second day in Vancouver, the day before the game, there was a practice at University of British Columbia and uh, at their rink. And the players and the coaches had a meeting that was an all-out meeting. It was as raw as it can be, as honest as it can be. And with John Tortorella, 
I don't care what people think of him. He is the most honest guy uh, with with everything. With players, if you want honesty, he's your coach. <laughs> and this was a, just a very honest, aired out, cleansing type meeting. Now, uh, management, Jarmo Kekalainen, and Bill Zito, myself, we were not in the meeting, even though we were there. And then when they came out for practice, uh, sitting in the stands watching, that was by far the best practice we've had all year. So whatever what was discussed, I think, was weighing on these guys. And how it got cleared, that's their business, their department, they took care of it. And in my opinion, we were going to either go north or we were going to go south. <laughs> and we've gone, we've gone north ever since, and it's been terrific. And everybody, uh, including the people we acquired at the deadline, have fit right in and, and playing their best hockey now. So a lot of good things happened, and I think that was a turning point for us. I, I, admit, I admittedly am not a pom-pom-carrying member of the John Tortorella fan club at all times. You are, you are obviously a torts backer. You've always been. Do you think that what he was able to do with the cultural of honest, culture of honesty in behind the scenes and also what he was able to do tactically in this series against the lightning was yeah. sort of redemptive in some ways for, for John in the eyes of some of his critics? Well, maybe in the eyes of some of his critics. And a lot of times if, and I'm not going to put you into this category, but if they're, if they're media critics because of the way he deals with media, well, then I, 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 don't, I dismiss that. It's I'm more about let's see how he can work with our players, our staff, our culture, and uh, get to the business of winning hockey games. Every Everybody in this league, doesn't matter who you are, they're, they're imperfect. Nobody's perfect. And we have a good relationship between our general manager and Torts, our coach. Uh, whenever things go... Uh, where they have a difference of opinion, they they they're a team. They work it out, and they and they get to try to make decisions that are beneficial to the organization. And I and I think what's and I've said this a number of times: if people who want to judge Tortorella do research on the best players he's coached over their careers, I guarantee you, ninety five, ninety eight, ninety nine percent of them will tell you he's an outstanding coach. A number of them will say he's the best coach they've ever had. And uh, all they want is honesty, and that's all he gives them is honesty. Whether sometimes he's wrong, he can be wrong, and he'll admit it. What he did in Vancouver, charging down the hallway to go after the other guy's coach, the other team's coach, that's that's wrong, and he'll admit it. But uh, you want a coach who can straighten the culture up? You want a coach who's honest with his players? He's he's that way. He just is, and he works very well with his uh, with his other coaches, his staff. It's it's pretty good. Like you said before, there were moments this season where it could have gone north or it could have gone south, and I think one of those moments was definitely the trade deadline. What was what was the internal strife like? What was the internal debate? How close did you guys uh, come to not going all in? Or was it always, let's push forward, we know what our situation is, we're no, not even going to entertain the idea of no, dealing off we, we, guys? You discuss, you discuss things. You discuss every scenario. That's how you, you cover your bases when you're, when you're trying to figure out what to do as an organization. And we, we uh, just came to the conclusion about, you know what, we've got a Panarin, we've got a Bobrovsky. Man, they're good players, really good players. Why don't we just go for it here? And the one reason we were able to do it is we gave up picks to get players. Most of these players might walk at the end of the season, but we don't know. We don't know where this is all going. However, our, our, our uh, young people that we've already drafted or signed that we're looking forward to getting into the organization – we have a good group, a really good group, and uh, and one of them is already here in Texier, 
who came over. He's born in France, played this year in Finland. When this season was over, came over to Cleveland, which is our American League farm club, and he had five goals in seven games, and we called him up, and he's, got, he's gotten better. Players love him. Mm-hmm. This kid can play, and he's 19. And he's just one of five or six guys that we feel are real, real good prospects that have a great chance not too far down the road to play for us. Now, if, we, if our cupboards were bare, that may have made it uh, a, a different uh, scenario for us because then you're going to hope the deal works. You're giving up picks. Everybody might walk, and then you've got nothing in your left hand and nothing in your right hand. You might not even make the playoffs. Yeah. But, uh, but it's all clicked in, and we feel real strong about our prospects. Our, our scouts have done a great job drafting for this organization, so I think we're in a good spot. Who came up with the idea to have that scrimmage the other day that attracted so many fans to the arena? Yeah, it was it was the coach's idea to to shake it up a little bit and do something a little different. So they just uh, we've got a number of players skating here too that don't uh, that are not with the main group, uh, the Peak and uh, Gavrikov and these types of players, good players, but they're not playing yet. So we decided to go with the scrimmage, and then Yarmo said, "Why don't we open it up to the public?" Which they did. <laughs> had no charge, and there was about 5,500 people that showed up on a Monday morning. Yeah. So it, it was great. They they absolutely loved it. The uh, playoff fever has caught on here in Columbus. Now, uh, people don't have any idea what happens if your team continues to march along because there's, <laughs> there's nothing like, for me at least, Stanley Cup playoffs in your city if you're doing well making a run. It just it captivates a city. It, it just does. But these people have... Uh, have not seen a, a series win in close to 20 years, and a lot of them have had their hearts broken about 25 times. <laughs> but, so they're, uh, heck, after game three, which we won against Tampa Bay, there was people in the stands that were crying. Hmm. I mean, that wasn't even game four. It was game three. <laughs> so it's it's kind of been a good time here. And finally, uh, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't at least bug you about this Rangers thing. There's all this speculation that you might be heading back to the Rangers at some point to be their president. They're they're looking for one. Your name's been floated out there. Is that an opportunity you might be interested in? Is it something that we should? I, uh... I can't even. You 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 said the word already. <laughs> it's it's speculation. Um, obviously, Glenn has, uh, has stepped down from that position. Glenn Sather, I'm talking about, who's a great friend of mine. We played together back in St. Louis in 1973. I see him in Western Canada in the mountains during the summer. We're friends. And uh, I have not talked to anybody with the Rangers. I'm busy with uh, with the Columbus Blue Jackets. So there's nothing. And until there's something, there's nothing. So I, I don't even worry about it. I don't think about it. We've got our hands full here. And, and having uh, to, to see the Blue Jackets start to get to where we're trying to get the organization to is pretty gratifying for us when you – you come in here and there in last place. It was very similar to St. Louis when I was there. They were maybe probably in a worse situation uh, in last place, and they've had some pretty good runs. They've got a good team this season. Uh, I like our team, and we've worked hard to build it. So that's that's just basically where I am. There's no more to it than that. Can we at least get you back on the damn television calling games? <laughs> yeah, that was fun. I really enjoyed it. Golly. <laughs> I shouldn't have worn myself out. I might still be there. But, uh, <laughs> the guys All right, J.D., you're the best. Congratulations on your first-round success and uh, hopefully uh, more to come for the, for the Blue Jackets. Appreciate it, Greg. Thanks. All the best. Our thanks to John Davidson, president of Hockey Operations for the Columbus Blue Jackets. And now it's time for Satch Got Your Number. Hey, Greg and Emily. The Boston Bruins have done this 14 times in the playoffs, most in NHL history. 
Oh, I got this one. It's uh, they've punched the side of the head of John Tavares without the referee looking. Most in NHL history. No one's ever done it. <laughs> well, I mean, in fairness, Tavares didn't use to make the playoffs a lot. So it, mm. I think most of those punches actually landed in this series. 12 out of 14 uh, of them. All right. So uh, they've done this 14 times, most of it, of any team in NHL history. I'll say they um, rallied from a 3-2 deficit in a series. I'm saying they played in game sevens. The Bruins have won 14 game sevens at home. Mm. They and oh. the Red Wings are the only teams to win more than 10 game sevens at home. So if this was elementary school, you might get, I guess, partial credit for mentioning game seven in your answer. So you'll have that going for you at least, right? Yeah, I'll take yeah. a half uh, star. Sure, okay. All right, now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. Yes, it's time for Phil Kessel loves hot dogs, our weekly look at the uh, hyperbole and the uh, mistakes and the uh, foibles of the hockey media. This time we're going to go to uh, the Winnipeg Sun, where uh, columnist Paul Friesen asked uh, Winnipeg Jets captain Blake Wheeler after the Jets were unceremoniously eliminated by the St. Louis Blues, quote, In an elimination game, you guys probably expected your best, right? What happened? Uh, to which Blake Wheeler responded, F off, Freeze. Come on, man. Maybe our best wasn't good enough today. And so this is the normal kind of back and forth that you'd expect from somebody pressing for a, a, a tough answer. You know, from an athlete after a game, you know, where was the effort? I'm speaking on behalf of the fans. But then he did that thing that I hate, which is that he made himself the story. Like, he wrote a column, like a mailbag thing, and in the mailbag he's like, uh, you know, he's talking about how he was asking about the effort, and he's like, Captain Blake Wheeler responded with an F-bomb in my direction, and I don't hold it against him. It's an emotional time, after all. Of course... There are those who wish Wheeler had introduced my pencil to my left nostril. Most of them were part of the nameless mob on Twitter. Dude, you asked a question, the guy told you to F off, and then he answered your question. Just let it go. Who cares? You're not the story. You're not the story. You know, I actually, this morning, I was having a conversation with my friend who does PR in the NFL, and he asked me about this Dwayne Haskins column that was uh, going around on NJ.com. Oh, man, right? And he goes, what did you think of this as a reporter? And I told him, I just read it. It kind of feels entitled, you know, and makes a story about himself. And, you know, I've had plenty of people who didn't want to talk to me for a story. I'd never go to these lengths to write about it. And his point was, that's what I thought. If you don't post the exchange when you get the cooperation from people, why would you do it now? Um, Right. And so, yeah, I, I think, look, it's in the heat of these moments, too, especially right after a loss that's so disappointing for the captain of the team, there's going to be emotions that run high. I don't know if this is totally indicative of who Blake Wheeler is as a person, but to take this one anecdote and spin it to yourself is a little self-serving. And It's, it's three disservice. different stages, right? So, like, mm-hmm. the Haskins story that you're talking about is what I thought was public shaming. Like, the reporter yes. is trying to public shame a source that didn't want to talk to him. Uh, me having tequila shots with Tim, Tim Peel at a bar. Well, that's when you have to become the story because this is the story and you're involved in it and oh, you're, you're flex, just, but okay. 
it's just you're there. <laughs> and then you have this Wheeler thing, which is just sort of like the worst part of making yourself the story, which is uh, building a cross and nailing yourself to it because Twitter was mean to you. It's just dumb. I hated it. All right, time for puck headlines. Dateline uh, Buffalo. TSN's Darren Drager reports that Penguins assistant coach Jacques Martin, formerly the head coach of the Florida Panthers and the Ottawa Senators, is a leading candidate for the vacant Sabres head coaching job. Why? Because Jason Botterill was in Pittsburgh before he was in Buffalo, and it's all about nepotism here in the NHL. Uh, Martin will obviously cost a fair bit less just because he was an assistant. But, um, yeah, higher friend season. <laughs> all right, Dateline, uh, Dateline uh, the NHLPA. An Associated Press Canadian press survey of NHLPA representatives from all 31 teams showed that almost half favored changing the playoff format with most of the support going back to the one versus eight uh, system that we had previously. Um, 15 players, 48.4% said the divisional format should be changed. Seven players said it should stay the same and the other nine were non-committal. The thing about this uh, survey uh, uh, news that struck me, Emily, is it was less than 50% of players that wanted to change the playoff format. Every time you turn around, there's somebody bitching about the playoff format and, oh, we were stuck playing the Bruins and all this other nonsense. And yet less than 50% of the respondents said that they wanted to change the format. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where um, it's almost like the goalie equipment early in the year where you hear a couple voices and they're amplified. And then you hear the NHL you know, equipment guys being like, if you actually talk to everybody – uh, the silent majority is actually against it. They're just not the ones yapping in the media. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, again, like uh, the wild card is what it is. I, I'm, I'm a one through eight guy. I, I think it wasn't broke, so there was no need to, to fix it. My, my issue remains, even though it didn't really apply to this postseason, is that they should reseed. And actually, it does sort of apply to this postseason in a roundabout way because – if you did the reseeding and the uh, the Knights had made it through, I think it would have affected things in the Western Conference. But not too much of an issue, obviously, in the East, what with the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, cropping out as spectacularly as they did. Um, but I just want to see the top seeds protected because the regular season shouldn't be completely meaningless. Dateline NHL Awards. All right, we've got some awards finalists in. It's been kind of on the low key because the playoffs have been so exciting. Anything stand out for you so far as far as people maybe being nominated that you didn't realize there's, there's a couple that kind of struck me as being a little weird um one of the more interesting ones i thought was robin laner for vezina i we've had such a great season but him and thomas grice really split a lot of the workload it was interesting for me yeah i think it just goes to show that like team success is such a huge part of the vezina vote yeah because john john gibson's numbers despite the swoon that he had kind of mid-season when the ducks fell off the the map um had a remarkably good season and probably should have been in there. It's tough to argue against Laner, but I agree with you that it was sort of a platoon for a lot of the year. Mm-hmm. And so it's weird that he sort of crossed the finish line. Happy to see Bishop get in. Yeah. Um, it'll be, it'll good. be very awkward when Vasilevsky wins. Um, for me, for me, I was genuinely, um, surprised to see Victor Hedman get in for the Norris. I thought hmm. that was going to be Morgan Riley or Chris Letang in a perfect world. It might have been John Carlson. You made a great point that John Carlson needs to hire a PR firm or something. He was my number two in my ballot. Yeah. It, 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 two years running now, that guy should have probably been a little bit closer. He sort of 
under the surface for whatever reason. I, I, I'm assuming it's because he just gets overshadowed by Ovechkin or whatever. But like, um, yeah, I was, I was surprised Hedman got in. It's not to say that he didn't have a good season. It's not to say that he wasn't a, a linchpin for that Lightning team, as we saw in the first round. Do you know uh, what? But, like, yeah. I really considered even putting Ryan McDonough in my top five. Like, I don't even know if he was the – he was probably better than McDonough this year, but they had two very good defensemen. They, they did. They did. So I was surprised to see him there. And then um, for my own personal edification, I was not too pleased to see Patrice Bergeron get into the Selkie top three. I just don't think he has enough games. But I understand what our PHWA brothers and sisters see in Bergeron. He's a generational player. Um, I, it's fine. He was fourth on my ballot. I just hope Mark Stone wins. That's all I care about. Um, finally, uh, oh, Dateline Dallas. The 2020 Winter Classic in Dallas is sold out at the Cotton Ooh. Bowl. Uh, after uh, Dallas and Nashville sold more than 60,000 tickets during the pre-sale, the remaining tickets made available uh, this week were sold out uh, to the public. 80,000-plus fans will be at the Cotton Bowl on January 1st for the outdoor game. Um, congratulations to the NHL. It only took you way longer than it should have to put a game in a non-traditional market between two teams that aren't original six or the Flyers or the Penguins. This only cements the fact that we should do past correcting behavior and uh, make Nashville in it for, like for the next four consecutive years. Have one on mm-hmm. Broadway, have one uh, in Vegas, whatever it is. They'll, they'll sell out. And now that Joel Quenville's in Florida, put the Panthers in the outdoor game. Pick up the pick up the thread from Chicago. Have a Pan- Panthers lightning outdoor works? game. Panthers lightning outdoor game during Gasparilla in Tampa. Oh my god, that actually sounds like my nightmare. I hated Gasparilla. It was just drunk pirate version of St. Patty's Day. Dateline Austin Matthews. The hell was this kid wearing before Game Seven? You don't get high fashion like he does. I don't get high fashion like he does. It is high fashion. I think I got to get high to understand his fashion is what I'm thinking. <laughs> what I loved about it, it was an NBA look. Uh, that's what NBA players wear going in. They wear something that's unexpected and weird and you're like, huh? Um, but it's them expressing their personal style. And for all of the harping we do, we want these guys to show their personalities. And one guy finally does. And everyone has to be the fashion police on them. I just don't get the hypocrisy. I, I don't dislike the ensemble the, the little sort of twiggy 1960s mod british uh um hat and the, the monochromatic the, blue yeah the monochromatic blue the 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 couture um you know work warm-up pants that's that fine probably too. eight thousand dollars yeah exactly it's it's all very stylish it's it's the shoes that did it for me like oh the shoes are what i thought were highest fashion oh i hated it it's too much it's it's a little bit it's a little bit uh, Colombian drug lord for me. And I couldn't he, deal with no, it. he went to some New York Fashion Week or something in his off time, and he took those right off the runway. Well, there you go. May, maybe think less about fashion and more about scoring. Well, maybe he needs some more ice time. Maybe mm. he needs more time on Power Play <laughs> One. Who's to say? All right. Well, that's a jam-packed ESPN and Ice for this week. Our thanks to John Davidson. Our thanks to Chris Johnston. And uh, you can find our stuff on, on ESPN.com, where this week we'll have previews of all the second round series and picks for those series um as you know emily and i both uh went uh, undefeated in our picks in the first round we get them all correct and uh and so please tune in to see which series we pick uh in the second round uh, it'll benefit Still a you. chance for matt murray and the Vezina guys <laughs> yeah, right. late addition uh, to the group you can find my stuff at wishinski on twitter at emily m kaplan and bye bye bye